0: Morning. I got a few back that time, thank you. Uh, this might be the first time ever. Uh, hey, good to be with you this morning. This morning we are kicking off a series in the book of Hebrews, and so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and make your way to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on that table over there on your way in, it's on page 941, and if you did grab one of those Bibles, or if you haven't yet, uh, you don't own a Bible, go grab one and keep that uh, that's our gift to you as a church. But Hebrews chapter one, uh, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews over for the next five months. Uh, and Hebrews is pretty unique uh, among the books of the New Testament, because we don't know who the human author of Hebrews is, and uh, we also don't know the specific church uh, that he was writing to. You know, when Paul writes a letter, he usually, at some point in the letter says, "Hey, it's me, it's Paul uh, who's writing this letter." Uh, But we don't get that with Hebrews here. Uh, And so we don't know who the human author is, but what we do know and what we've known for all of church history uh, and what has been recognized for all of church history is that the book of Hebrews is God's word. This is the word of God uh, for us. God is the ultimate author of this book, and Hebrews is a book that is for us. Uh, because while we don't know the specific church that Hebrews is written to, what we do know from the letter is that it was most likely written to a group of Jewish Christians, people uh, who had started following Jesus, who had come out of Judaism, and who were starting to be persecuted and marginalized and harassed for their faith in Jesus. Later on the letter, it tells us that uh, things were happening to them like they were being put in prison, and they were having their homes raided, and having stuff stolen from their homes, and they were being mocked and harassed for their faith in Jesus. And and Judaism was an acceptable religion in their society at the time. It wasn't being persecuted in the way that Christianity was, and so they were tempted to go back to Judaism and turn away from Jesus and go back to the sacrificial system so that they wouldn't face this same level of persecution and and marginalization. And while you and I are are probably not going to face the temptation to, to turn back to Judaism... Uh, we, we do face a similar temptation that the first readers of Hebrews were facing, and it's the temptation to look for something better than Jesus or turn away from Jesus when things get tough or when you get tired. Because if you've been following Jesus for any length of time at all, I, I'm sure you face the disappointment and the disillusionment of, man, I, I'm following Jesus, but my marriage isn't getting any better. Or, I'm following Jesus, but my job is still miserable, and I'm still miserable at my job. Uh, or, I'm following Jesus, but I still struggle with depression. I started following Jesus, and my struggles with temptation and sin have just gotten harder. They haven't gotten easier. Or, I've been following Jesus for a really long time, but, but yet I still just feel stuck in this rut. If you haven't faced that sort of disappointment and disillusionment yet, Uh, just hold on, you just haven't been following Jesus for very long because it comes for all of us. And and so all of us at different times in our life face this temptation and this question, of man, is Christianity really worth it? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Because I I look around at my neighbors and my coworkers who don't follow Jesus, and, and they seem to lead pretty happy lives. They seem to have pretty nice lives, And I kind of want to go back to that. I mean, at least it would free up my Sunday mornings, like I'd get to sleep in. Maybe I need to go try something else. Maybe I need to look for something better. In response to that, the the author of Hebrews, he writes them, and he writes us a sermon. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's a sermon, and the point of his sermon is really simple. The point of his sermon is don't turn away, don't give up on Christianity Christianity is worth it because Christianity is Jesus and Jesus is worth it. It's worth it to keep following Jesus because Jesus is better. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. And so for 13 chapters, the author of Hebrews is just going to grab our faces and turn us towards Jesus and make us stare at Jesus and how much better he is than everyone and everything so that we wouldn't give in to this temptation to turn away from him or to look for something better than him. And that's how he kicks off this passage in this book this morning, with that theme, encouraging us, don't give up, don't turn away from Jesus, because Jesus is better. And so let's see this in God's Word now. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses. Starting in verse 1, the very Word of God to us, it speaks to us like this. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Pray for God's help on our time together this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us. Not just long ago at many times and in many ways, but in these last days through your son. Would you give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, hearts to believe and cling to him. God, in this moment, would you help us to see how Jesus is better. Would you help our hearts to rest in the good news of the gospel that Jesus is better this morning? Would you do that through your word? You're more than powerful to do so, so I pray that you would in this moment. In your name, amen. And well, two big ways that these first four verses tell us that Jesus is better. They tell us that Jesus is better revelation and Jesus is a better priest. And so let's think first about what it means that Jesus is better revelation. Uh, He begins the passage and he begins the book by saying long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Um, uh, We have two dogs, uh, a black lab and a yellow lab, and my wife Braylon and I talk all the time about how, how awesome it would be if we could know what they were thinking, if they were able to talk to us. You know, the the black lab is pretty anxious and neurotic, like she's got something wrong with her. We don't know what happened to her, but she's got all these anxious habits, and we really wish she could tell us what's going on so that we could better help her uh, and better calm her down with some of that anxiety. Uh, The yellow lab is pretty dopey, and uh, this week he was doing something that he shouldn't have, and so I got down in his face and I said, hey, you can't do that anymore. There's a baby in the house. You've got to grow up. And he just cocked his head at me every time I told him he needs to grow up. He just kept cocking his head. And it's like, yeah, he, he doesn't understand uh, what I'm saying here. Uh, the, both dogs, when we, they, they love going on walks. But when we get their leashes out, uh, they go take off throughout the house. And they hide. And we have to chase them and corner them to get their leash on. But then as soon as we get their leash on, uh, they're ready to go on the walk and excited to go on the walk. Like, I, I'd love to know. What's going on there uh, in their brains with that. You know, we've we've got a pretty decent idea of when they're sad and when they're happy, and they each have these unique personality traits that, that come out, but really at the end of the day, we can't really know what they're thinking because we can't talk to them in a way that they understand, and they can't talk to us. There's this barrier because speech is so important. Talking is how We get to know one another. It's the way we reveal ourselves to one another. You you can't know what someone else is thinking unless they tell you. And, And I hope you realize God did not have to do that. God did not have to talk to us. God was under no obligation to speak to us. He could have just created the world and said, here, that's enough. You guys go ahead and figure it out. But he didn't. God is gracious and he spoke. A lot, at many times, and in many ways, God talked to us and revealed himself to us in the Old Testament. I mean, think about all the different ways God spoke to us in the Old Testament. He's spoken to us through songs, through poetry, through stories, through prophets, through visions and dreams, through uh, a burning bush, through coming down and audibly speaking on Mount Sinai, through a donkey in the book of Numbers. But but Hebrews is saying all of those different ways of speaking were still, in a sense, partial and incomplete. They were like a movie trailer. A movie trailer doesn't exist for itself. It exists to preview and point forward to the movie uh, that it's a preview of, and it only is meaningful as a movie trailer if the movie it's previewing eventually comes out. Well, Hebrews is saying that it has, because he says in verse 2 that In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So in contrast to the many times and many ways God previously spoke, in these last days, God has spoken to us one way, fully and finally, most clearly in and through his Son. He's spoken to us in Jesus. And this is better because, think about it. What what way other than speech do we really have to get to know somebody and reveal ourselves to someone, and what better speech could God give us than sending his own son? This is why Hebrews says we're in the last days, the last period of history before Jesus returns, because there's not a third form of communication we're waiting on. There's not something greater, there's not a greater revelation from God that we're waiting on that we haven't gotten yet and that we need. Because Jesus, this is God in person. In the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, we are getting the clearest picture of what God is really like. And and, and that's better revelation. God's spoken in Jesus, but Jesus is better revelation, not just because he's one with the Father, but because he also clarifies what the Old Testament is all about, what all of God's previous speech was all about. Uh, The the Old Testament is about Jesus. It's pointing forward to Jesus, and it was promising that Jesus would come, but until Jesus comes, those promises are a little bit vague and shadowy and unclear. One person compared the Old Testament to a room that's filled with furniture, but that has all the lights off. And so the stuff is there, and it's always been there, but you can't really see it because it's dark and there's no light. But when Jesus comes, he flips the lights on, and then we're able to see that the Old Testament has always been about Jesus, that God has always been speaking to us in Jesus. We're going to see it over the next few months. Hebrews, maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, shows us that the Old Testament is about Jesus, that we cannot understand the Old Testament until we understand how it points to Jesus, and that Jesus and the Old Testament, they exist in this mutually interpreting relationship where we don't have the categories uh, to know who Jesus is and what he's doing without the Old Testament. And at the same time, we can't understand the Old Testament until we understand how it was pointing forward to Jesus. And so Jesus, in his coming and in his life and his death and his resurrection, he clarifies and helps us see all that God is saying to us. He explains God's speech and God is speaking to us in him. And the author of Hebrews, he keeps emphasizing how much better the revelation we have in Jesus is because of who Jesus is. Because he goes on in verse two and he says that that God appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things. That means everything belongs to Jesus. He will inherit everything. This is what he came as a man to do, to claim his inheritance of all things. And Hebrews says the reason that he's the heir of all things, is because God created the world through him. Jesus is the creator of the world. Look, when we talk about Jesus, we've gotta be sure we're talking about the right Jesus. Because Hebrews is saying that the baby who was born in the manger and grew up to be the man who died on the cross is the same God that created the entire universe. That Jesus is the creator of everything. And if Jesus is the creator and inheritor of all things, he can only be what verse 3 says he is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance is a word that means the the outshining, the shining out or the display of something. And so think of the sun, S-U-N, the rays of the sun are the sun's radiance. It's their display. It's how it shines out. And when Hebrews uses the word radiance, it wants us to think about the Old Testament. Because when you think back to the Old Testament, and you think about when the tabernacle and the temple were uh, first built and constructed, the glory of God came down in a cloud over the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies, and his presence was so powerful and so visible and so thick, and his glory was so overwhelming that the priest couldn't even get into the tabernacle and the temple to minister in it. Think of the visible display of God's glory and power and presence, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the people of Israel in the wilderness through their journey to the promised land. That's what Hebrews is saying Jesus is. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the visible display of God's glory and presence and power. And just like you can never separate the sun from its rays, You can never separate Jesus from the Father. He's one with the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And if we had any doubts about that, Hebrews knocks those down with the next phrase that it uses to explain Jesus. It says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The illustration Hebrews is using here is of a seal. Think back in the day when kings had a seal or a signet ring, uh, and they would put hot wax on that seal, and then they would stamp it down on, a, on an edict or a decree uh, or an envelope, and that's, it would make a seal that was an exact imprint of their ring and of that stamp that they had on their ring. Well, Hebrews is saying that's what Jesus is. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the mirror image of God. He is where we see God. And so here's what Hebrews is saying, as clear as it can say it. The baby who was born in the manger and the man who died on the cross is the God of the universe who is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Like, yes, Jesus was born as a human being in Bethlehem, but he did not get his start there. As God, he has always existed. I mean, look at what it says about him in verse three, that Jesus, right now, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Mere men cannot do that. Hebrews is saying, you are not getting God junior or God in training or substitute teacher God when you get Jesus. Jesus, in the gospel of John, he says, he and the father are one, that they are one God and that when you see him, you see the father. This is how clear God's speech in Jesus is, and this is who Jesus is. And so do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God thinks? Do you want to know what God does? Do you want to know God? Then you go through Jesus and only through Jesus because God has made himself known in Jesus and only in Jesus. God has spoken to us in Jesus because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and he's the exact imprint of his nature. And so God's spoken to us finally, fully, and most clearly in Jesus and the whole opening of Hebrews is pushing us to be a people who listen to God's speech to us in Jesus. I mean, look at the passage. Look at what it says. It says God has spoken to us by his son, not just to someone else, To us, to you, personally. God has not stayed in the dark. God has not stayed closed off. He has opened himself up and spoke so that you can know him and have a relationship with him. And the place where God has spoken about Jesus in a way that you can actually know him is the Bible. The words of the Bible are the actual words of God. The God of the universe has literally talked to us in this book. This book is God's Word, and it is a ton of words about Jesus. This is where you can hear God talk to you about Jesus in a way that's perfect and trustworthy and true. And so, man, we should be a people who treasure the Bible, who are constantly reading it and meditating on it and thinking about it, who are constantly trying to submit more of our lives under its authority, who are constantly trying to grow in our understanding of it. Uh, do you, do you want to be encouraged to, to be a person who does not turn away from Jesus when things get tough? And well, then cling to the Bible, saturate your life with the Bible. Be a person who, when you get cut, bleeds Bible because you spent so much time soaking yourself in the words of this book. You spent so much time enjoying the relationship that god has opened up to you by telling you about jesus in the words of this book Look to to claim to follow jesus and to do anything less to neglect the bible is is really to say yeah god i I want you to save me from my sins but i don't really care about what you have to say to me I, i don't really care to know you i just want you to do good things for me to look to other places to Figure out who God is and what God is like and neglect the Bible would be like getting a phone call from your favorite musician or athlete or or celebrity or whoever it may be and not answering their phone call when they want to talk to you because you feel like the article you read about them or the interview you listen to them in is enough to really know them. That's foolish and we don't want to be foolish. And so I encourage you, Make your life about this pursuit. The question you should constantly be asking yourself is how can I get more of God's word into my life? How can I know it better? How can I hear it more? How can I obey it and listen to what God has to say to me in this book? Because God has spoken to us in his son and Jesus is better revelation. But that's not the only encouragement that Hebrews gives us to not turn away from Jesus the author of Hebrews also encourages us to not turn away from Jesus because Jesus is a better priest. Look again at verses three and four with me. Starting halfway through uh, verse three, he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So up to this point, Hebrews has been describing Jesus and who he is as God, and now he it, it begins to shift to describing what Jesus has done for us as a man. And the author introduces a theme that he's going to spend uh, multiple chapters developing later, this theme of Jesus being the priest who offers the final sacrifice to pay for and purify us of our sins. Jesus offered himself up on the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins so that we would not have to and purify us, cleanse us from them so that we wouldn't have to carry the guilt of them any longer and we would increasingly be set free from slavery to them. And so Jesus did that. He died on the cross. He offered himself up and then he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And Hebrews says that when he does that, he became greater than the angels because he inherited the name that is better than the name of the angels. It's more excellent than their name. So that obviously should raise a couple of questions for us. The first question is, what's the name that Jesus inherits? And we'll talk about it more next week, but you can see it really clearly if you just keep reading. Uh, The next verses clearly tell us the name that Jesus inherits is Son which just raises more questions, doesn't it? Because wasn't Jesus already the Son of God? Wasn't Jesus already superior to the angels? Uh, Hebrews just said Jesus is God, did it not? Yes, to all of those questions. Yes, Jesus has always eternally been the Son of God. Yes, Jesus, as God, has always been superior to the angels. And yes, Hebrews very clearly just said that Jesus is God. And so how can it say at the same time that once he did this and accomplished our salvation, Jesus uh, inherited this name and became superior to the angels? Well, you've got to remember, Jesus took on our humanity. He took on a human nature and became truly human and lived a fully human life. And, and so now Jesus is one person who exists with two natures, divine and human, a divine nature that he shares with God the Father and the Holy Spirit and a human nature that he shares with us. And so the Bible, and especially the book of Hebrews, it'll talk about Jesus in two distinct and different ways. Sometimes it'll talk about Jesus and who he has always been as God, and sometimes it'll talk about Jesus as a man and what he did to accomplish our salvation as a man, but it's always talking about the same person. It's always talking about Jesus. And here in verses three and four of Hebrews, Hebrews is talking about what Jesus did as a man. Uh, In the Old Testament, the king of Israel was called God's son. He was called the son of God. And what the prophets promised is that the Messiah, the king, the savior who would come, that he would be the son of God as well. And so we're looking for this human son of God and the savior king who will come. And, And it has to be a human being who does this because... Think about it. Like, God does not need to be saved. God doesn't have any sins of his own that he needs to deal with. We're the ones who need to be saved. We're the ones who have sins that need to be dealt with. We as human beings are the ones who have broken and twisted our lives and rebelled against God. And so it has to be a human being who does this and accomplishes salvation, but it can't be someone who's just a human being because What we see in the Old Testament is that every human being born after Adam is sinful. Uh, Even the best kings of Israel are horrific sinners. So we need a man to do this, but at the end of the day, we really need God to accomplish our salvation because there's nobody who's sinless, but God in his divine nature can't die and pay for our sins. He is life itself. You cannot kill him. So here's what Jesus does. He takes on our humanity. He takes on our human nature, and he lives a true and full human life as a man. And Hebrews 2 verse 9 says that when he does this, he becomes for a little while lower than the angels as a man. And so he lives a perfect life as a man. He dies on the cross as a man, to pay for our sins, and then he rises from the dead as a man and ascends into heaven as a man, as a human being, and when he ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God, that's when he is formally installed as the Messiah, as the King, and he's given the name of Son of God as a man, as a human being. If that's still super muddy and confusing, maybe thinking about it like this will help. Think about when we elect a president. It's somewhat like this. So the president gets elected in November, and then from November to January, they're the president-elect. So they're the president, but they haven't really stepped into the office yet. They haven't sworn the oath of office. They haven't had their inauguration and been inaugurated, but then in January, They have their formal inauguration ceremony. They they swear in and take the oath of office, and they step into office, and they become not just the president-elect, but the president of the United States. Well, in a similar way, Jesus has always been the Messiah, but before he dies and rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, it's somewhat like he's the Messiah-elect. But once he accomplishes our salvation and sits down at the right hand of God, that's his formal inauguration day. That's the day when he is crowned as the Messiah, as the human king. That's when he steps into his office as a man and begins to rule as the king of the universe for his people and for our good. Now, what Hebrews is saying is that only Jesus could do this because of who he is as God, And the only way Jesus could do this is if he takes on our humanity and accomplishes salvation as a man. And this is incredible news for us because, again, Jesus does not need to be saved. We do. So Jesus takes on what is ours and he transforms it from the inside out. And Hebrews is saying he's actually done this. He's actually accomplished it. Cyril of Alexandria puts it like this. He says, uh, if Jesus just conquered as God that would be of no use to us. But if he conquered as a human being, then we too have conquered in him. It's as if we were drowning deep in the waters and Jesus uh, descends from heaven and he dives into the waters and he grabs us and rescues us and pulls us up out of the water. But he doesn't just leave us on the shore safe from drowning. He actually carries us back with him back up into heaven. Because of what Jesus has done, There is a human being sitting on God's throne right now. Because of what Jesus has done, there is a human being in heaven. Jesus has taken our humanity into heaven. He's made our mortal humanity immortal. And because he's done that, we're going to conquer in him as well. Death and sin and corruption and brokenness will not get the last word over our lives. Jesus will. Because he conquered as a human being, he became the human son of God and accomplished our salvation and took our humanity into heaven. And so Jesus, in his ascension, he's formally installed as the Messiah, as the son of God, as the king, but he's not just formally installed as the king. He's also formally installed uh, as the priest. And this is incredible news for us as well, because there's something in these first four verses about Jesus's formal installation as our priest that should just leap off the page for us. It's that little phrase in the middle of verse three. What does it say that Jesus did after making purification for sins? He sat down. He sat down. Now, why should that leap off the page for us? Well, Think about after uh, you come home after a long day, and uh, maybe you have dinner, and you put the kids to bed, and you clean up the kitchen, and you do all of that, and then finally after all of that, uh, you sit down in your chair, you sit down on the couch, and you kick your feet up, and you pick up a book, or you turn on the TV. Now, when you do that, when you sit down, why are you sitting down? You're sitting down because the work is done. There's no more work left for you to do. You finished the work for today. You completed the job. Now you just get to relax and enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's what it means to sit down. And what's interesting about the temple and the tabernacle, the places where the priest in the Old Testament ministered and offered sacrifices for sins, uh, what's interesting is is the furniture in the tabernacle and the temple, because there was a lot of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple. There was a table, uh, there was an altar, there was a lamp, but, but do you know what the temple and the tabernacle, what they both did not have? They didn't have any chairs. They didn't have any couches. There was nowhere in the temple or the tabernacle for the priest to sit down. Why? Well, Hebrews 10 tells us why, and it says the work was never finished. The priest had to keep standing, keep offering the same sacrifices for sins day after day after day because purification for sins wasn't being finished. The job was not done, so they couldn't sit down. But what does it say that Jesus did after he made purification for sins? He sat down. He sat down. And you know what that means, right? He sat down because the job was finished. He sat down because he finished the work. He sat down because he actually made purification for sin's Once and for all, he sat down because he is a better priest, the one who actually deals with our sins and actually pays for them. This is why he sat down. And look, here's what this means. Because Jesus made purification for sins and then he sat down, Jesus is the priest whose sacrifice is so effective that there isn't another offering needed. Jesus is the priest whose sacrifice for your sins is so effective that it pays for all of your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't even gotten around to committing yet. He pays for them in full. Jesus is the priest whose sacrifice is so effective that it forgives and cleanses everything. Everything you've ever said, every sinful thing you've ever done, every sinful thing you've ever thought. If you trust in Jesus, if you are in him, Jesus' sacrifice is so effective that you will never again face judgment for your sins. Ever. This is a better priest. This is the priest who's made the final sacrifice once and for all for our sins. And the encouragement of the book of Hebrews is to hold on to him, to cling to him, to keep trusting in him, to not look to anything else. Look, if you're not a believer in here this morning, here's what you have to know. If you turn away from Jesus, if you reject Jesus, you're blinding yourself to being ever, ever being able to know God. You're turning off the lights in your life because the only place that God has made himself known in a saving way is in Jesus. But not only are you doing that, if you turn away from Jesus, if you reject Jesus, then you're also on your own to deal with your sins. Like payment for your sins and someone dealing with your sins, it, it has to be done. Either you will pay for your sins or Jesus will. And if you turn away from Jesus, if you reject Jesus, he's not your priest. His sacrifice is not yours to claim. You know, if you've got credit card debt, and you get a new credit card, uh, that doesn't erase the debt from the first credit card. you still got to figure out a way to pay for the debt of that first credit card. And in a similar way, you can reject Jesus' sacrifice for you, but then you're on your own to pay for your sins, and you've got to figure out a way to do that, and that bill is going to come due. So why don't you instead receive the sacrifice and the offering that Jesus has made for your sin? if you'll trust in him, if you'll declare allegiance to him, if you'll cling to him, he will save you. He will become your priest. And look, if you you are a believer in here, you may think that we're not very tempted to turn away from Jesus' sacrifice, but but what I want to argue and convince you of this morning is there are a lot of ways that you and I can begin to drift from it. There are a lot of ways where we can fail to believe it for what it really is and diminish its power in our lives. There are a lot of ways where we can begin to feel like we need to give it a a supplement, a vitamin shot of our own performance to help it out. Uh, Here's what I mean. Jesus' work as the priest and his offering for our sins and the purification he's made for our sins means that if you trust in Jesus, if you are in him, you are completely right with God. You're completely acceptable to him. God loves you, he's welcomed you in, and he does not condemn you. But many of us don't feel that way, do we? Many of us measure our level of forgiveness and God's acceptance of us based on how well, how consistent we are reading our Bibles and how well our efforts are going to grow spiritually. And most of us know we don't really measure up in those categories. We've got a lot more average or even bad days spiritually than we have good ones. And so many of us feel like God just exists in this kind of general posture, like how, how he feels about us most of the time is just, he's disappointed in us, and he's frustrated with us. Like, yeah, I, I don't know right now, but I know there's got to be something off in my life that God's mad at me about. I mean, even now, you may have already made the New Year's resolution. This is the year where I get serious about my relationship with God. This is the year where I get back on the wagon spiritually and really begin to take these things uh, with more importance. And look, it's not wrong to want to grow in your relationship with God. You absolutely should want to grow in your relationship with God. What is wrong is thinking that if you could just get a little bit more consistent in your Bible reading and you can just be a little bit more serious about your pursuit of holiness, that that will move the needle and that will suddenly make God move from this posture of disappointment and anger towards you, towards loving you and being happy with you. Because all of that is saying Jesus needs help with the sacrifice. All of that is saying Jesus paid it almost and we just got to help him close out the deal. All of that is diminishing and rejecting what the Bible says about what Jesus has done. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus made purification for our sins and then he sat down. He did not pay it some. He did not pay it almost. He paid it all. You have a priest who has so conquered and overwhelmed your sins in his cross, that you never have to fear judgment for them ever. You can know a right relationship with God. And so this is one of the best ways to determine if you really are getting the gospel, if you're really beginning to grasp it and understand it in your heart. Where do you run when you sin? When you sin, do you run from God? to spend some time beating yourself up, cleaning yourself up, feeling like you've got to get on this treadmill where you've got to give him a few days to cool off or you've got to give him a few good deeds in response to balance out the sin that you just did. Do you run away from God or when you sin, do you run to God convinced that this has not changed your relationship with him and that he's full of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and power to change? People that understand the gospel, they run to God when they sin. They understand that Jesus made purification for sins and then he sat down. This is why John Owen said, what most grieves the heart of God is when we have hard thoughts of him, when we think he isn't really this loving, he isn't really this gracious, he's not really this forgiving of us, he's not really this powerful to transform us. When we believe that his heart towards us ebbs and flows and goes up and down based on how well we're doing spiritually. But that's not the God we know in Jesus. That's not what the Bible is saying about the salvation that he accomplished. And so here's what you can have with Jesus as your priest. You can actually know and enjoy acceptance and favor with God. You can enjoy and know his love for you and his grace for you. You can rest from the feeling of always living like you've got to earn your keep and prove you belong. You can get off the treadmill. And and listen, I, I know it sounds so counterintuitive, but this is actually the way that we grow. This is where obedience to God grows in our lives, because if we just feel like we need to obey God so that he doesn't judge us and condemn us, We might change some of our behaviors, but even if you start doing the right things, you're doing them for the wrong reasons. You're not obeying God for God's sake. You're obeying God for your sake so that he won't crush you and he won't condemn you. But when you understand that Jesus has made payment and purification for all of your sins and there's no fear of judgment hanging over your head that you ever have to worry about any longer, you actually begin to be able to love God for who he is and obey him out of gratefulness for what he's done for you. Your motivations, not just your heart, uh, not just your behavior begins to change, and you can grow in your love for God, because God's not an angry taskmaster who's keeping score over your life. He's a father who loves you, has forgiven you, and has welcomed you in. And so here's a New Year's resolution for you this year. What if this was the year you stopped living to earn your keep and proved you belong? What if this was the year you stopped living like God's heart towards you is as fickle as yours is? What if this was the year you started living like you can actually know God and have a relationship with him through Jesus? What if this was the year you started living like Jesus made purification for your sins and then he sat down? Look, it can be the year for that. If you'll simply rest in this good news, if you will believe the gospel, Jesus is yours. If you want to know God, you can in Jesus. If you want to be made right with God, you can in Jesus because Jesus is better revelation and Jesus is a better priest and he's yours if you trust him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word thank you for the good news that this passage gives us. That Jesus, who has always existed with you as the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal, creator of the universe, in grace, taken on our humanity and lived as a man and accomplished salvation for us. God, would you give us grace to believe it and rest in it? Would you give us grace to believe that we can really know you through Jesus, that you've spoken to us in Jesus and opened up a relationship? Would you give us grace to believe that you've conquered our sins and dealt with them in Jesus? Would you give us grace to believe that, that there's no offering needed, not a further sacrifice that we need to perform Would you give us grace to rest in the truth that Jesus made purification for sins and then he sat down. God, I pray that you would, even in these moments as we respond to your word, that you would work in our hearts and encourage us with the good news of Jesus. In your name, amen.